this week on Life and Faith. I think there's an element of fascination for us, not just because destruction is kind of mesmerizing, but also because I think it says something about our longings. What do the apocalypses that we project say about our desires for our life together? You know, in peacetime and in plenty, there are a lot of kind of complications and layers to life. Um, And I think we tell these stories partly as a way of figuring out what really matters. We have entered into an amusing ourselves to death moment in history. It doesn't make sense to me. If there is God, God's supposed to be free. I was 100% sure that I was sacrificing on the altar of truth my only chance for happiness in this world. Miracles don't necessarily change anybody's mind. They just get their attention. And so I had to run with my child on my back, the Isa army coming behind us. I said, gee, Uncle George, this is luxurious for a communist. <laughs> Sonny said nothing's too good for the worker, nothing. Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. And today we'll be talking about the pleasures of pessimism, which also happens to be the title of a new book out this week by my co-host, Natasha Moore. Natasha, the pleasures of pessimism. Yeah. Really? Why? Well, lots of reasons. Um, I mean, on the pessimism thing, um, I've been noticing, taking note for some time, that we have become quite pessimistic as a culture. So I don't just mean, you know, as individuals, some people are optimists, some people are pessimists, but what we project as a culture, the kinds of stories that we tell ourselves, um, you know, there was a time when as a society, we uh, had utopias. We projected these kind of um, glittering futures Mm. and we don't really do that anymore. It's all kind of dystopias, it's all disaster. Um, pretty much every news story can be served up with a bit of a hint of Armageddon. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of the pessimism. And then the pleasure part is that I don't think that it's just that imagining everything going wrong makes us miserable. I think there's something sort of strangely satisfying to us um, in the way that we project disaster. There's um, a great word for this, that we are apocaholics, <laughs> which I quite like. Well, it would be good to talk about more about why that might be, but there's also real crises, aren't there? I mean, obviously now, right? Yes. The COVID crisis, but also even before that, climate change, um, sort of economic sort of anxiety. There's there's a whole lot of things that mean we're, we're not really enjoying this aspect of life. It does feel like the end of the world as we know it sometimes, life is perilous. It's not completely irrational to think no, so, right? No, um, and I'm definitely not saying that we don't face very, very serious problems, um, both now and in an ongoing way. Mm. Um, and I do think there is such a thing as a healthy pessimism. You know, there's one that kind of galvanizes us to action because we're worried about the future. Mm. Um, but I think if you scratch the surface of our collective pessimism. It's not just driven by, for example, what scientists are telling us about a changing climate. Um, We kind of have this habit, we've developed this apocaholic habit of couching almost everything in terms of the end of the world. So, you know, any headline, um, and maybe this is just what you have to do to get attention to a problem, right? It has to be a crisis. It has to be, you know, one of my favorites, Tinder is the dating apocalypse. <laughs> not just, mm. oh, this is affecting, you know, the way that we do life together. Maybe this is not ideal. Are there yep. ways that we can fix it? 
Um, I can't comment on that one. <laughs> well, I'm not saying I can, but, um, you know, I do think that everything being panic stations all the time can actually become counterproductive. You know, it's fatiguing. Mm. Uh, it can make us ultimately a bit apathetic. You know, there's yeah. so much wrong. What's the point? We kind can't. Fatalistic. We're not going to be able to solve anything. So, okay, well, but let's unpack the pleasure part a little bit more. Yeah. So, well, I mean, do you like dystopian movies? Do you like disaster films? Mm. Yeah, yeah, I do. There I are like a lot some. of them around. There are, yeah. What do you like and why? Well... What's appealing about this? I, suppose, I don't know. It's in, it's just so shocking, the thought. It's interesting, a bit alarming to contemplate the crumbling of our civilization. Is it really the thin veneer that, that it can, you know, everything can collapse at any time? So I do think there's something, you know, arresting in that. And we, mm. we like to be a bit scared, don't we? And it, in, a, in a way that sort of distances it from ourselves. I really liked, I haven't done heaps of this, but I really liked Cormac McCarthy's novel, The Road, for instance. Oh, it was gosh. a great book and the <laughs> film. It was like really. the most depressing thing I have ever read. Yeah. I can't say it's my most enjoyed. But he talked about this. This was about human goodness, McCarthy said. Was it? He said, <laughs> he said um, No Country for Old Men was about human evil mm. and The Road, human goodness. Well, you got to look pretty hard in that book to find yeah. human goodness. But, you know, that, that's what I think that is interesting about that. Um, there's something um, compelling about everything that we hold to be sort of safe and reliable and predictable being stripped away. Yeah, What a time absolutely. to be saying this, right? But still. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's something kind of mesmerizing about watching everything fall apart, especially from the safety of our couches. I mean, I think that's probably true for you and me. There are, of course, people who take more than a recreational interest yes. in the end of the world, as we know it. I'm preparing. I'm preparing. I'm preparing. My family. For a massive earthquake. Terrorist attack. Dirty bomb blast. Global pandemic. Of Doomsday Preppers. I know something's going to go wrong. Am I nuts or are you? Kicks off with back to back episodes. So, this is a show from National Geographic, Doomsday Preppers, people who are prepping for, you know, disaster of some kind or another. Um, so, you know, the show kind of follows their preparations and they get points for things like food and water and security and so on. Have you seen this show at all, Simon? Haven't seen it at all. Did you know it existed? Not before now. <laughs> are you tempted? No, not really. <laughs> um, how do you think you would go in the event of civilizational collapse of some kind? Well, you know, I survived survival camp in year 10. I feel like that's... That's, that's essentially what survival camp is for, right? It's to prepare you it's for... A, it's an achievement, I can tell you. The way it worked at my school. But no, nah, probably, uh, you know, you probably... Most people wouldn't want to be getting in behind me in, in, in this sort of crisis. I'm, not, I'm sort of infamously impractical. So I've... Not sure I'd last very long. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm the same. I think I have precisely zero skills <laughs> that would be useful in <laughs> these kinds of events. Um, but I think watching these shows, um, whether it's Doomsday Preppers or The Road or whatever it is, I think there's an element of fascination for us, not just because destruction is kind of mesmerizing, but also because I think it says something about our longings right. um, for how we might want things to be simpler for how we might want to uh, sort of find out what we're really made of when everything hits the fan. 
Um, you know, in peacetime and in plenty, there are a lot of kind of complications and layers to life. Um, and I think we tell these stories partly as a way of figuring out what really matters, who we really are, um, how things like community and purpose and solidarity, how we'd like those to feature. So this is something that I kind of unpack a bit in the book. Um, you know, what do the apocalypses that we project say about our desires for our life together? So as a culture, we think about the end of the world as we know it quite a bit. Now, this is something that Christians have been thinking about for a really long time, actually. And in a way, they're kind of notorious for it. Now, our colleague here at CPX, Mark Stevens, just happens to have a PhD in this stuff. He wrote his thesis and a book on the end of the world in the Bible. Or at least that's my quick interpretation of it. So I thought I'd get him in to chuck his two cents worth into the discussion. Mark, I think it's the first time on the podcast. Welcome. Well, it is a great pleasure to be here, Simon. Now, tell us about the book of Revelation. What are some things that people who've never read the Bible might know about Revelation? They probably know of Hollywood films. Uh, <laughs> they're thinking about uh, fiery meteors coming from uh, the sky. They're thinking about crazy weather events. They might be thinking a bit of a, a supernatural feel, maybe some angels and demons flying around. Think science fiction, think dystopias. That's your kind of aesthetic with regards to Revelation. And they probably, if they do know it, think about something that's a little bit unhinged, maybe a little bit mad. So the uh, Irish playwright George Bernard Shaw once said that the book of Revelation is the curious record of the visions of a drug addict. So that gives you a feel <laughs> for how people might treat the book. It's a pretty wild book, isn't it? And quite influential at one level. Yeah, super influential. It's massively influential on art. It's massively influential on politics, even, and the way that people think about political movements. Yeah, it's a bit scary. Now, can you give us one or two examples of Revelation being misunderstood or used badly, in your opinion? I'm guessing there's there are a couple of Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering how long you actually have, Simon, <laughs> if you really want to turn the whole podcast over to this. The essence of where people go wrong with Revelation is they think it's a secret puzzle that we've got to kind of unencrypt, kind of enigma style from World War II or something like uh -huh. that. And so the goal becomes to decode it, to find the keys to the puzzle. And the encryption key most often used throughout history has been the notion that contemporary events make us understand what the original readers somehow couldn't understand. And so you see this happen over and over again through the medieval world, through the Renaissance, even right up into the modern world like the Cold War, where people think modern events are the key to understanding the symbols of Revelation. And so you play these games like who is the Antichrist? Yeah. Depending on what which political po era you're in. You got it. Yeah. Depending on which political era you're in, it could be the Pope, it could be Ronald Reagan, it could be Bill Gates and a vaccine right now. And, uh, and so you get that. And then you also get kind of crazy joining the dots. So my favorite interpretation of the book of Revelation, as in one specific instance, is the people who find Apache attack helicopters in the book of Revelation. <laughs> so in Revelation chapter 9, there's these locusts that appear in Revelation, uh -huh. and they've got women's hair, and they've got humans' faces, and they've got breastplates of iron, and they've got stingers in their tail. And I know what you're thinking, Simon. <laughs> That is a description Absolutely. of an Apache attack helicopter. How could you miss it? How could you miss it at all? There's no question. I mean, it gets pretty sort of 
crazy, doesn't it? And it sounds sort of fun, except there's probably a, a serious problem with this type of interpretation. Yeah, right? well, people change their lives on the basis of this. I mean, we think somewhat humorously of doomsday preppers and the like and kind of heading out into the desert with a tarpaulin and canned goods. But yeah. well, that's, that's starting to look a bit more... <laughs> that's starting to look like a wise <laughs> option at the moment. do now. Uh, but it changes political movements. It changes uh, people's actions within the world. Sometimes violence is inspired by it. Sometimes really kind of harsh measures against one another are inspired by misinterpreting these visions. What does apocalypse really mean? So the word apocalypse actually is comes from a Greek word, apocalypsis, and it simply means to uncover something that was previously hidden, to, to reveal something that we couldn't previously see. And so there's nothing in the word itself that actually means end of the world. There's everything about it is that you can't see something on the surface and now you're having it revealed to you. And within the Jewish and Christian tradition from which the word is taken, it can be that an apocalypse refers to a revealing of the present, something you can't see in the present, but somebody makes you peer behind the curtain, or it could be that it reveals the future. And so it's because we have these future visions sometimes in Jewish and Christian writing that people associate it with end of the world. But the word itself just means unveiling, uncovering, revealing. Yeah, revealing something that's there, but you haven't been able to see. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Now, Mark, you're, you're a Christian. You believe revelation is telling us something true about the world and about our reality. What, what do you think it tells us? I think revelation uses these very powerful images to arrest us and get us to stop and think and to imagine the world differently. And so one of the key things about Revelation is it does reveal the present to us. It says about the present, it asks a hard question. It says, what is worthy of our allegiance? And in particular, is there any structure of human power that is worthy of our allegiance? Because we look at human power and we sometimes can think it is the source of all joy and harmony. In fact, when Revelation was originally written, it was written into the time of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was presenting itself as a source of peace and blessing and everybody was going to flourish under the Roman Empire. But what was hidden was the fact that it was an empire built on idolatry and injustice and people were being destroyed by that empire in as much as also people were enjoying the fruits of it. And so Revelation reveals to us that all forms of human power are not really worthy of our ultimate allegiance, that we need a, a transcendent source in order to guide us and to take us beyond the mistakes and the failures of human power. And Revelation really incredibly arrests us in terms of our imagination. It also presents us with a, a future hope that I think we really need, a sense that there is a possibility to transcend death and a possibility to actually see something beyond the present um, limited experience that we're in. And so in those two ways, I think Revelation has something powerful to, to say to us about this is not all there is. It seems, therefore, something that has been able to speak into every era mm. that people have been reading it in. Where, where does something like climate change fit into this type of discussion? Yeah, I think climate change is an example of where human power has actually gone too far, that we start to realise that our power over the earth actually causes us to destroy and damage it. And so Revelation, far from the popular view, the idea that Revelation doesn't care about the earth, in fact, what Revelation portrays is that human power has the capacity to corrupt or destroy the earth, which is what I think we see in our contemporary environmental crisis. So I think something like climate change is an example of human power gone wrong, 
and revelation can form a powerful critique that human power shouldn't be uh, left untrammeled and shouldn't be left unrestricted, but actually we need to consider our actions uh, upon each other and upon the earth. And, and having something, perhaps someone, to answer to and be responsible to. Yeah, that sense of accountability, of yes. Mark, great to have you on. Thanks so much. Been a pleasure. This is Life and Faith, and I'm talking to Natasha about her new book, The Pleasures of Pessimism. And so far, we've covered the end of the world, uh, the strange appeal that it holds for you know, many of us. Now, I know you said that this is about cultural pessimism, not whether we as individuals are naturally optimistic or pessimistic, but just out of interest, where do you come on that scale? Are you the kind of glass half full or empty kind of person? It feels important to know what the authors you know, like. <laughs> yeah, I should probably stay neutral or something. <laughs> it should be like a guarded secret. But I did not realize this until I started working on this topic. But I've discovered that I think I really am an optimist. Okay. Not just I did, you know, a few like very unscientific quizzes online just to check but actually I really think that that's my natural tendency mm. what do you identify as <laughs> Simon well, I'm fo often falsely accused of being a pessimist you have a bit of a reputation mm, no, it's not, and it's not fair uh, <laughs> I'm actually I think I'm quite optimistic actually and maybe again that's something I've sort of discovered um, now I know you say that we're quite pessimistic as a culture but do you see both strands in public debate are there optimists as well as you know pessimists yeah, and definitely kind of optimists who are responding to the pessimism and kind of saying, hey, everyone, like, what you doing? Mm. Things, that, things are a lot better than you think they are. Um, so there are kind of these intellectuals or public figures um, who are very big on this. I can't say that I've heard heaps from them this year <laughs> so far. <It's> strangely <laughs> But quiet. in general, they can be quite scathing about our cultural pessimism and kind of trying to pump us up to be a bit more positive. Yeah, who are, who are some of the examples of these prophets of you know, progress? <laughs> uh, Steven Pinker, mm -hmm. um, the Canadian psychologist, is yep. a very well-known one. He's written a number of books about how, you know, everything is getting better, everything has been getting better for some time. Um, I actually found there's one very convenient place to go where you can get this whole kind of debate, both sides distilled yeah. for us. There's a series of debates called the Monk Debates, M-U-N-K. Um, there's one from 2015 that was on more or less this exact topic. Well, tonight's debate is a bit of a change-up for us, a, a departure of sorts. We're going to reflect on the nature of our society, its most deeply held beliefs, all in the context of the question we're posing tonight. Has, is humankind progressing? Does mankind's best days lie ahead? So this debate had on the affirmative side Stephen Pinker, and Matt Ridley, who is a British science writer and member of the House of Lords. And on the negative, Malcolm Gladwell, everybody's favourite cultural commentator, um, and Alain de Botton, the philosopher. So a few big names. Pinker sums up his argument pretty succinctly. No, the only way to understand the fate of the world is with facts and numbers. That is, plot the incidence of good and bad things over time, not just for charmed places like Canada, but for the world as a whole, see which way the lines are going, and identify the forces that are pushing them around. 
So Pinker and Ridley are all look at the data, all the good things, things like life expectancy and education, those lines are all going up. The bad things, almost all of them, things like disease and war and extreme poverty, those lines are going down. Therefore, things are getting better and better. Uh, now, Gladwell and de Botton don't dispute the data, but they have some other points to make. Here's Alain de Botton. He packs a lot in here, so deep breath. I believe that at the top of our spinal cords, we have what I like to call a faulty walnut. A walnut mind that has very destructive impulses, that is immune to certain kinds of education, and that resists any attempt to help it in many situations. I believe, ladies and gentlemen, that we must go towards a different sort of philosophy that will serve us much better. And that philosophy I call pessimistic realism. It's a counter to the boosterish attitude you find in modern science and modern business, which for different sets of reasons is permanently trying to get us to feel more cheerful about things. This kind of brewsterishness is dangerous and cruel. Think of its application in relationships. Imagine if somebody said, I'm perfect and getting more perfect, and I'm looking for someone who is perfect and willing to become ever more perfect. This would be a disastrous kind of relationship to be uh, getting into. Forgiveness and tenderness and sympathy is based on an acceptance of our own fundamental imperfection. We are flawed creatures and need to keep our flaws in mind in order to be able to be truly human. There is something frankly frightening about perfectionism. We are angry whenever we believe that we were promised paradise and we got a traffic jam, lost keys, a disappointing relationship, a less than optimal job. We are furious and our sense of entitlement comes back to bite us. This is the danger of the age. We cease to appreciate... Simon, so which side are you on in this debate? Are you kind of with the prophets of progress or... I don't know, what mm -hmm. we call the other side, the doomsayers, the pessimistic realists, that's well, what de, de Botton calls them. Yeah, de, yes. A few, several years ago, I read P.J. O'Rourke's book, All the Trouble in the World. It's a very, <laughs> very funny book. And he says something like, and I know you've picked up on this and used in your book, he says something like, if you want to ever understand how well you're doing living now compared to in the past, I'll give you one word, dentistry. And, yep. you know, I do sympathize with this, right? We're happy to have air conditioning and cars that mostly don't break down and sort of pain-free dentistry and <laughs> these sorts of things, surround sound, whatever. But no, no, I'm, I, I'm more with de Baton, however we want to say his name. I've heard it used many, <laughs> <laughs> said many different ways. Um, I'm more with him in the sense that whatever we do technologically, we're left with this human challenge, human problems. But just don't seem to go away. We, we're, we're absolutely faced with this reality of the imperfect human life. So I guess I'm more along the real, something along the lines of realism there. Mm. I mean, I think in some ways, like I'm with you, I can see the rational arguments that Pinker and Ridley are kind of putting forward, but my heart is a bit like against them. It feels a bit kind of triumphalist it doesn't or something. It doesn't seem to accommodate enough the very real painful things that people are going through, no matter how wealthy they are, or how, mm. how, um, it's quite insensitive to say, well, Hey, it's better than it used to be. Uh, you know, Pipe are, down. all of us know if we've lived long enough, the, the, the tragedy as well as the beauty of life. Mm. And it's, it's evident all around us as well as when we look in the mirror. <laughs> True my sense. that. <laughs> Well, this really resonates with, and if you're a long-term Life and Faith fan, you might remember this, an interview we did with Nick Spencer from Theos Think Tank in London. 
when he was out visiting you remember in the days remember these days where people could actually <laughs> Just visit barely. Australia <laughs> anyway we asked him about progress and human nature and if there's a specifically Christian view of this here's what he had to say I think that the human person has a malleability a creative fluidity to it which means we are not simply set on the same set of train tracks that are permanent and immovable and take us to a pre-programmed future. The person is responsive to love. And I think, therefore, the person can be redeemed through responding to the love of God. And that means the person's future can be redeemed and can progress. And I'll put that in inverted commas. It can blossom and flourish in a way that it might not otherwise. However, our orientation towards ourself and our self-interest and my good, sometimes my good over and above and at the expense of your good, is nonetheless a pretty strong pull. And therefore, we should never assume, even for those, sadly, especially for those sometimes, who have recognised and embraced and tried to follow the love of God, that that pull of the self is somehow always and totally overcome. Progress, therefore, I suppose, is possible, but certainly not necessary. And we can extrapolate that out to societies as well. Then. And I think that's precisely the point. You know, you can, if that's, if that's the, the, the complex battle that's going on in every individual heart, let's multiply it by the 40 or so million people that live here or the 7 billion or so people that live in the world. It means that within that, you can certainly see an enormous potential for human moral progress. But you have that twin fear of technological progress that seems to continue apace with a more ambiguous form of moral progress that may or may not progress. And I think the worst situation, and this is something that Arthur Kerstler wrote about, 70 or 8 years ago, vis-à-vis -vis what happened in the 1930s and the 1940s, the worst possible scenario is a coincidence of significant human technological progress and development with moments of human fallibility. And if you get that, which is classically what you did get in the 30s and 40s, the scene is not a happy one. So, Natasha... Tell us about the conclusion of your book. What do you think? What should we do about our pessimism? Well, I do have some tips, I suppose, in the book. But really, like it's a short book. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's quite fun. Um, I really just want us to become more self-aware about this, um, to start paying attention to the kinds of futures that we're projecting as a culture and where that comes from and what the implications of that might be. Uh, ultimately, I do think that our optimism or our pessimism about the future um, is going to be a function of what we fundamentally believe about reality, how we answer questions like, what is human nature really like? What kind of universe do we live in? Um, one of the examples that I talk about uh, at the end of the book is the civil rights movement of the 1960s. Um, there's this famous Martin Luther King quote, which he's kind of borrowing from an earlier preacher as well, where he talks about how the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Mm. Um, and you know, he and his fellow campaigners really believed that 
hope, that justice, are built into the fabric of things. They're not a trick we play on ourselves. They're not a human projection, which means that there's kind of a robustness to those things that, you know, you don't, that's not, you don't have to believe those things um, to do stuff like campaign for justice, but it can really help you to persevere, I suppose, in the face of big obstacles if you do think that the world is fundamentally like that. Well, the book is called The Pleasures of Pessimism and it's out now. Visit our website, Kurong or Amazon, pick up a copy. Thanks for listening to Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart and Natasha Moore. Next week. If at a fundamental level, we can't believe that somebody is made in the image of God, then people are not worth being cared for. I want to care for my neighbors because they're made in God's image. Um, but I know that the work of caring is going to be hard work and it's going to be costly. It has to be costly. If it's not costly, is it worth doing? I think that's something we have to ask ourselves. Like this is partly the price that we pay to, for love. I love my husband. I love my children. I love my neighbors. And to pay that cost now, I'm being asked to sacrifice in ways I've not been asked to sacrifice before. And it is worth it. It's hard, but it's worth it. And yes, it is causing me to re-examine how I do things and the way we do things. And yes, we must examine it as a society. But I don't think our social solutions are always going to remove the need for us to still care for each other. We can't. <laughs>